So should we start? Let's yeah. do it. Majority, Canada's greatest ever environmental news hour on CIUT 89.5 FM or on your local community radio station. And my name is David Franklin Irwin Hostetter. I'm Stephen Christian Irwin Hostetter. And Lauren Elizabeth Corlator is away this week. And Stefan has an interview with Gretchen Fitzgerald, the National Program Director of the Sierra Club, about the Bay du Nord project. And this is the oil drilling project off Newfoundland that was recently approved by the federal government? It is worse than you think. All right, so we're going to do climate news now. You ready? Let's do it. The European Union, this was mentioned last week, that they were about to meet in Brussels to talk about the Energy Charter Treaty. Um, So the EU has now voted to reform the Energy Charter Treaty that has been allowing fossil fuel companies to sue governments for jeopardizing their profits. This is related to the investor state dispute settlements that's been mentioned on this program for the last two weeks, where these private courts determine how much governments need to pay fossil fuel companies for uh, getting in the way of their profits. So the treaty has protected fossil fuels from government policy. Uh, The reform provides a long phase-out window, meaning that it will continue as is for another 10 years. The reform means that fossil fuels will eventually no longer be included in the treaty, but the treaty will still protect investments in new and existing renewables. So one of the things they added to the Energy Charter Treaty is that investments in renewables will be protected. Uh, Paul de Klerk of Friends of the Earth is quoted in Euractive as saying, quote, The agreement is a disaster as it will lock the EU in fossil fuel investment protection for at least another decade and till 2040 for new gas infrastructure. Uh, There has been disagreement about whether countries should seek to reform the treaty or just withdraw from it. Euractive reports that uh, supporters of the reform argue that the 20-year sunset clause means that countries would be locked into the deal for 20 years after they withdrew from it anyway. So the reform is better than withdrawal. Supporters of withdrawing from the deal argue that it's the EU countries themselves that allow the deal to exist. So therefore, a coordinated European Union withdrawal would put an end to the treaty, and the sunset clause would be moot. The head of the UN, Antonio Guterres, recently said that fossil fuel companies, quote, have humanity by the throat. It's hard to say anything more than what Gutierrez says there. You know, the the coils of international finance has throughout the world are truly, I think, cementing us into a previous world, one that would never actually survive a truly capitalist market. They've all, you know, rigged the game and are now profiting off our inability to work out work our way out. You know, these kind of rules that you're referencing might have made sense or they thought it made sense when they made them. But what it's basically saying is no matter what the world 
changes, we still get and should be always guaranteed profits. You know, like if a store opened up down the street and said, we've opened this store. Now everyone around us has to buy from us every day for the next 10, 15 years. They could do whatever they want for those 10, 15 years. We're all obligated to keep giving them money now because for some reason we signed into this just so they'd open the store in the first place. And that is everywhere. We don't have the ability to pull ourselves or, or to change how we are prioritizing things because companies that existed or started existing 50, 100, even 200 years ago have slowly changed laws or made agreements that basically guarantee them success. These companies have managed to basically create an unfair advantage for themselves in perpetuity. You see similar things with the farm bill in the United States. The government is sort of stuck in support of a price floor for corn, which leads to bigger and bigger farms aiming to maximize their output because they're guaranteed a price from the government, which means farms keep consolidating and small farms get pushed out because they can't afford, because they can't maximize their yield in the way that you know these bigger companies can. These bigger companies then keep investing more and more in nitrogen, fertilizers, things like that, which are bad for the environment, just to maximize the amount of money that they can make at every single corn stock because they know they're guaranteed a certain price on corn and they have no need to diversify their offering because the government's guaranteed to give them a certain amount of money. And then they make that money and they no longer need the corn. So they sell the corn for pennies on the dollar which gets bought up by someplace like Nest, like a big company like Nestle, turns it into sweetener, puts it, attaches it to water, which they also get for pennies on the dollar because they're pulling that out of the ground, and then sell it at like massive, massive, massive markups to the consumer. The consumer has now subsidized every part of this along the way from their own tax base and yet are still paying the now inflated price for the actual, you know, soft drink. All the while, the people who are working the farms aren't getting paid well, and the people who are canning the drinks aren't getting paid well, and the money is just getting siphoned up into tax, into the shareholders of these large international or large conglomerate companies. I'm not quite sure how your, what your argument is that uh, the floor price for corn has caused consolidation and monopolization. Remember in the the whole farm protests in India were all about guaranteeing that these floor that these floor prices would would uh, be maintained. I'm not suggesting that like the histories of 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 the democracies are similar in the two countries, but a floor price for a certain crop isn't that designed to help a smaller farmer? Well, you're saying, I, I, you're saying I, I it's actually it's, caused consolidation. I mean, I think it starts as as helping a smaller farmer, but the problem with it is that it what it most does is encourage maximizing yield. What it most does is say, well, if you want to guarantee and know how much money you're going to make, grow this ex- these exact few crops and grow as many of them as possible. And so, if you're a farmer who wants to grow, who wants to try crop rotation, or wants to try different ways of growing things, or wants to try, you know, trying to diversify their their outputs, that is deeply, deeply dis- discouraged and disincentivized. And then, 
to maximize yield, what you end up needing to do is more and more inputs. So more and more nitrogen fertilizer and more and more of these external inputs, which also cost money. And to have enough money to be able to buy those engine inputs, you know, it helps to be a bigger and bigger company. And right, so, but it always helps to be a bigger company. Well, but but that's because of the way we set it up. You know, you could create other incentives to encourage smaller companies. You could you could provide, for example, you could provide incentive to grow different pr- crops on your land, or you could provide incentive to do soil restoration and and support people who are doing that. Or you could provide a a price floor that is actually different depending on the size of the farm. Right, like okay, you're a small farmer. You will get eight cents per you know pound or whatever. And if you're a a larger farm, you get two. Right, like you could design this in ways that did not lead to consolidation. But the economics of farming right now, it's true here in Canada too. And I, I can't say it's only due to you know the price floor. Right. I mean, and in that sense, I can see the floor price for corn accelerating maybe a consolidation process that was already happening, but not necessarily causing. Like, uh, capitalism will inherently consolidate almost everything. That's it's one of its main flaws without the government trying to intervene. And, you know, it's really refusing to do that, so. All right, so some observers believe that the U.S. Supreme Court is going to strike down a 2007 decision that recognized the government's right to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. The case, uh, West Virginia versus the EPA, could have ramifications for government control well beyond environmental law as well, and is part of a coordinated strategy by various players who want to further erode the state and hand even more power over to corporations and the wealthy. And I say that because some legal observers believe that this case and cases like it could greatly affect the U.S. federal government's ability to regulate a lot of things. Quickly to explain why it is very likely, even maybe by the time that this airs, the Supreme Court will have already made this decision, and why everyone is so certain they will make this decision, is that the law that this case is is about, which is uh, Obama's clean energy plan, which came out in 2015, actually never got enacted. And... Trump then repealed it and then rewrote a new law in 2019, which was then struck down. And the Biden administration hasn't written a new one. So the Supreme Court is taking a lawsuit over a seven-year-old rule that never came into effect and at the moment doesn't exist at all. And, you know, their time is very valuable. So the fact that they decided to actually take this case and and to rule on this case speaks to the fact that they really just want a chance to be able to ensure that the next president won't be able to, you know, use this. So they're looking to create a legal precedent that any future attempt by the EPA to regulate carbon would be invalid, which is basically saying that the, that the Environmental Protection Agency is not legally allowed to protect the environment, to which I don't have much else to say beyond how this month of June and the U.S. Supreme Court decisions that have come with it will be a turning point for America and probably the world. Because during this session of rulings, the court has already basically stated that the U.S. cannot regulate guns, 
but can control women's bodies. That people do not need to be read the, their rights when they're being arrested. That states can gerrymander their districts to disenfranchise black voters. And that tribal lands of sovereign indigenous nations can be impinged upon by the state. And this is such a mishmash of vast overreach by the state in areas where conservatives want to have power, while massively limiting government in areas which the conservatives do not, that the only way to understand what is happening is that the Supreme Court has made itself the de facto monarchs of the United States. And if the Democratic Party sits idly by, what is left of American democracy will fade with it. You know, these things are very bad, but they can open up the potential for ha potentially solutions that weren't possible in previous times. Like in this case, there are various uh, scientists trying to get, trying to petition the government now to recognize carbon dioxide as a, as a toxic substance. And so to avoid this Supreme Court decision, they're saying maybe now we can regulate carbon try to regulate carbon dioxide under a new category. And so if it's considered a toxic substance, maybe that opens up even other legal possibilities. I don't know. But I think that to do that, there there's would sort of have to like the last like 20, 30 years of progress in America in some ways has come from you know pushing these for these legal precedents to exist and pushing for stronger legal uh, protections in you know for in these different ways, and well, the precedents clearly don't matter. Though. Well, that's what I mean. This Supreme Court has basically decided that precedent doesn't matter, and so they are going to do whatever they like. If you don't do something about the way the Supreme Court is, then they will just come back and say, "Oh, that toxic thing is also not constitutional." You know, like you you cannot not meet this moment and and fight back against the way that the Supreme Court has decided that basically they run the country now. Yeah, but you're saying if the Democrats don't do something, we're screwed. But like you can't look to the Democrats to do something because like they're one half of the whole of the whole complicity, right? They've always been complicit in this. Using the term the Democrats in this context is mostly to use the term of the ways that power could be approached in the United States would have to be through a political system. And if you're going to do that, you probably would have to come in, you know, to sort of take it over with a more progressive bent. But the political system in the states is run by, uh, you know, parties. I guess you could imagine a third party coming up and, and, and challenging the Democrats from the left, which theoretically could happen. But like the point I'm making is that if the powers that exist now and in the next five years don't really try to think outside the box they have been for the last 50 and actually find ways to push back against this in real, real ways and hold people to account for the things that they have done, then we are in a very dark time. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a question of who's going to wield power and how much. Like, as we just stated in the, in the first story here, those governments in the EU could simply assert their authority over private corporations, right? But they're choosing not to. They're choosing not to assert their authority as governments over, over private corporations. But, but Joe Biden, right, and the EU countries are kowtowing, right, to their enemies. And so aren't they essentially their enemies? Like, Biden was all about, let's work with the Republicans, blah, 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 right? Yeah, I mean, I, I, my point is not to say that Joe Biden will save us. My point is that the answer 
if we are going to do anything to stop this, you know, massive, massive step backwards that we've seen in the last two weeks, you know, and yes, it's been building up, but the last two weeks, the Supreme Court has done some truly heinous, heinous damage. There has to be true power taken back. And so, yes, I think I don't think Bill, Joe Biden is up for this moment. I, I actually know how abortions worked in the States before. Like, I'm, I'm guessing people would pay for them, right? I mean, Were they always always had to be paid for. Or? I mean, everything has to be paid for. Although I don't know if some, we cov- get into some some places would cover abortion. I mean, I don't know if we want to get into the abortion conversation in the show. You're the one who brought it up. I mean, I just mentioned it because it's one of the things that they've taken back. But let me think. Let me let me just let me finish. What I'm what I'm saying is the taking the taking away of that power can expose the like the paucity of having it in the first pl- in the uh, of having it in the first place, and people can use that catalyst to to gain what they actually deserve, right? Which is an yeah. actual working healthcare system. Well, that, what, what I'm, that's what I'm saying about it being a turning point no matter what. Either it's a turning point towards darkness, or it is the moment when the ineffectualness of the system is so clearly laid bare that the you know dinosaurs of the Democratic Party are pushed out, and that the folks who have real solutions and will actually push back and will actually sort of try to hold the power and hold the Republicans to account could cut, step up and, and actually have, you know, real sway in the party. But why is your discourse still revolving around a two-party system in the states, though? Like- well, because because you don't have time to build up a new party. It's only it's like literally something has to happen in the next couple of years or there will never be another election, the fair election in the United States. Like we're not talking about 10, 20 years down the road here. If If something doesn't happen quickly which the Republicans will cement their control in a way that will never go down. I don't see how cre- how third-party politics w- would be detrimental, because isn't it, isn't it a, an old saw that FDR was only pushed to make his reforms because there was so much socialist, uh, communist movement in the states as a result of the uh, Great Depression, that he was like, Okay, something needs to something needs to get done, or we might have communism, right? And so you can ha- you can have a huge push on the left for something totally other than the Democratic Party that still move that still makes something good happen, right? Sure. So but- so I don't see how I don't see how being like no, it's the Democrats that are going to actually the the Democrats need to wield their true power is somehow better than uh, working in in political movements that aren't tied to the Democratic Party. I was saying that. Like, the people who have to do the things are still the people who have the power. Like, yes, it'd be... I, but, but, like, but, but if there was a movement being like, no, screw all of those people, we have our own people, that would still be push the Democrats to the left. Because then there would still be that catalyst for them to say, okay, we might really have a real socialist problem, right, if we don't, if we don't figure something out. But then what are they going to do? They're just going to preserve what we already have. So I just don't understand why... Why you're saying that, like working outside, like of the of the Democratic Party, and leaders outside of the Democratic Party, is detrimental to to I, I wasn't saying I'm not saying that it's detrimental to progress. I am what you're I'm saying. S- it's a waste of time to think about a third party. I'm saying that if the question is how we are going to make it through the next five years, and a, no matter how strong, if the Democrats don't do anything for the next five years... They're not going to do anything. We know that they're not going to do anything. Biden's been in power for two years now. He's done nothing. Nobody's done anything. 
I mean, then okay, then we're gonna go into some real dark times. That's the like that's we're my already argument. there. Uh, <laughs> what? What? I just don't understand why you're saying the Democratic Party are the ones who need to step up here. Like, because they're, they're the not only going ones to who step, can. They're not going to step up. It's the, the, the amount of time we have and the, the way the system works, there is not enough time for anyone else to do anything beyond the a unbelievably gigantic general strike that forces, that grinds America to the halt. Literally, literally Joe Biden is in power with a majority and yeah, they're and, they're backsliding. <laughs> yeah, and they're I, backsliding. It's like yeah, it's it's as if Trump never left. Like I mean, that's not true. But like, yes, he is part of the problem. That is the reason why Democrats have not done things. Uh, like you're you're conflating the fact that I'm saying that the people who have the power to push back have to be pushed back with me saying that they are the right people and the good people and therefore will push back. Right. I'm only stating that the the action has to come from the people who can do things. Yeah, but no, but those people aren't listening to this radio show. <laughs> well, of course <laughs> Nancy not. Nancy Pelosi is not sitting there like, oh, you're right, Stefan, I need to do something now. Well, like, I, You're the one, I, I, <laughs> I just was saying that, like I ended this, my whole thing <laughs> on just saying that unless something happens, we're gonna like it's a it's a it's a turning point. So either we're gonna see a huge populist up, uh, you know push that will hopefully you know sweep a whole bunch of peop- new people into power that you know that will create a, a a much stronger progressive wing that will lead you know strong changes, or we will see the cementing of minority rule that will take who knows how long to unseat you know or if that's even possible at all. I'm well, not like well, you're, th- you're just... thinking within the system as it is, though. You're thinking within the system as it is. The, the timelines don't allow for <laughs> another system to exist. Sure, if you, you, yes, you could know, argue things can that can happen pretty quickly. Things can happen pretty quickly. All right, I look forward to. I don't know. I'll just, you see this, you're attached to these timelines, these schedules. <laughs> it's just a reality <laughs> of how long we have to deal with things like climate change and the the cementing of minority power in the United States. Yeah, but the timelines of how we have to do th- things with climate change is like, like we have left, we have we have leftists in power, and in Canada we have leftists, not a leftist, but the only official left that can wield power, in our countries, are not doing anything, and even Boris Johnson appears to be an environmentalist compared to Joe Biden and Justin Trudeau, but and that seems to be solely because of of market forces, and not because of power these governments are actually wielding. I mean, yeah, w- w- there has to be a massive shift in every government for us to take, you know, take real climate change seriously. Well, but I'm and, saying we should be advocating for something that is real, not like we hope these politicians finally do the right thing. I'm not I'm not advocating for anything. <laughs> I'm just stating a fact. I'm not making a case. Right. So you're saying if the Democrats if the Democrats don't do something big, then there's necessarily going to be a popular uprising. Or a cemented minority rule that will hold that will that will hold that popularizing down in some very I'm sure dark ways. Yes, like these are like we're in a inflection point, and unless we are able to find some leaders who can actually meet the moment and actually bring the energy that you see in movements, you know, like the unionization efforts that exist in the states that are happening all over in Starbucks and the other places, you know, the Amazons and the Apples, you know, that's a very, very good and 
positive movement that is potent that if, if could be could, could be brought into some political power could you know actually push back against the level of corporate control we currently see but that requires a party to see them as uh as allies and which to party work is with that Stefan? like it could it could be either one theoretically <laughs> i'm going to guess well, if it's it, going to be either, either party either one either one it could it could be neither we do not have the time. We can't. We can't air any of this. This is like this is like twenty minutes longer than it could We're possibly be. We're airing all be. of this. It's not even possible. You, you're gonna. We're gonna air. We're gonna send it an hour and a half show. I'm not gonna get to the the good news. I don't think. <laughs> you can't give them the good news, Dave. Give them the good news. Um, climate change has made tropical cycles. <laughs> Climate change has made tropical cyclones 13% less frequent, according to a new study published in Nature Climate Change. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, weird, but good news. London, UK, has signed the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty. Great news. A new study in the journal Nature Sustainability has analyzed 30 long-term farming experiments in Europe and Africa and has found that ecologically positive practices can produce as high a crop yield as ecologically damaging farming practices. So we don't have to use all of that fertilizer to have a high yield. Which is unbelievably good news. And I would argue one of the number one things we actually have to do to uh, to tackle climate change. Colombia's new president, Gustavo Petro, has ambitious plans to restore the Amazon rainforest. This is the first leftist president elected in Colombia, apparently. Right. That's very good news. And Lula da Silva, who is currently ahead of Bolsonaro in the polls by 16 points in this year's elections in Brazil. This is the guy who was essentially framed and kicked out of the country. And now he's, now he's back in the country, having been um, vindicated, has said that his government, if elected, would commit to fighting illegal deforestation and restoring deforested areas. So we'll see what happens in October. I mean... Yeah, we could really use uh, Riva's Amazon rainforest. So Lula, if Lula, Lula, if Lula and uh, and Gustavo Petro could work together on actually protecting the Amazon, that would be huge. All right, now we're gonna go to music and come back with Stefan's interview with Gretchen Fitzgerald. Gretchen the, Fitzgerald, the national program director of the Sierra Club, about the Bay du Nord project. Gibo. here as previewed earlier on the show with Gretchen Fitzgerald, the National Program Director of the Sierra Club, to talk about the Bay du Nord project. We discussed this a few weeks ago and it sort of keeps coming back in the news as you know, depressingly it continues to move forward. And so it's, it's great to be able to dive in more deeply on this topic with you, Gretchen. Thanks so much for being here. Yeah, well, thanks for having me and thanks for covering that, as you say, the depressing story of Bay du Nord. Hopefully we can yeah. make it non-depressing by the end. Yeah. Not I mean, over yet. <laughs> exactly. I feel like so many stories <laughs> are depressing until they're not, right? And we still have an opportunity to make it a not. Yeah, exactly. So for folks who may not have as deep understanding, can you tell us what the Bay du Nord project is and who is behind it? 
Yeah, and it's understandable. A lot of folks would not be able to sort of envision an offshore drilling project because it's it is one of those things that happens in this case pretty far offshore, 500 kilometers east of St. John's in the middle of the North Atlantic, essentially. So quite far out there. And the project itself would entail drilling in ocean depths deeper than a kilometer and several wells would happen if if the project went ahead so it would be i think up to 40 wells or so would be drilled over decades so it is it's a massive industrial project happening in the far offshore in the north atlantic and of course in search of oil and some of the production estimates from this project are you know over a billion barrels, which translates to, you know, putting millions of more cars, seven to 10 million more cars on the road every year for which it it produces. So it's a significant uptake in oil production and it's happening in marine waters, you know, further than than they've ever gone in, in Newfoundland and Labrador's offshore industry. So much deeper, their average well depth now is 140 meters. So they're going much deeper, they're going further. And of course, in terms of climate, they're going to the next frontier, taking us beyond our safe climate limits. Yeah, for sure. And I want to drill in for a second, pardon the pun, (laughs) to one of the things you said there, which is, are you saying that they'll be drilling new wells like 10, 20 years down the road? So does this project basically envision the idea that in 2045, they'd still be potentially drilling new wells to pull out oil? Yeah, yeah. as part of the approval of the project. Yeah, it's it's a decades-long commitment to keep doing this. And I think listeners to your show will be extremely aware and feel very personally, that, you know, experientially, that this is not something that is sustainable. So yeah, we just approved a project, yeah, that could go for decades in the future to produce oil for which we need to reduce demand going forward. So it is a delusional, I've called it delusional project. If you envision a world that tackles climate change, and I think we all have to envision that world. So it it's something we very strongly opposed from the beginning. And it, it It's also, I'm not an economist, but the world is shifting and countries now are phasing out gas-fired cars. Like things are shifting and they have to shift faster, but we have to envision a world where the demand for this product goes down. And economically, it's also a very, very risky project. And Newfoundland and Labrador, as a province that's relying on this industry or seems to be wanting to rely on this industry. It's a very risky proposition that their leaders are, are leading them toward. Yeah. I mean, yeah. uh, Yet last week we covered a story in Bloomberg, which was talking about how the oil giants are getting out of the, the tar sands in part because they themselves a bit see the writing on the wall in terms of 20 years down the road. And so they don't want to start new projects that would be expensive capital now to be producing oil in 20 years instead they you know they're going to the easier places like shale fracked gas shale fracked oil in the you know in the states and stuff like that and this just seems the opposite of that right this seems like truly trying to begin to build an industry that as we talked about the world itself has said or the 
was it the, the IPCC? I, yeah, know, IPCC, the, but also the International Energy Agency. Which yes, IEA. That's who I was thinking. Not, yeah. You know, known for being, frankly, a tree hugging organization historically, they are saying the shift is happening. And in the context of the Ukrainian war as well, put out a new report showing no new oil is needed to deal with this, you know, now Ukrainian crisis. But even before that, yeah, they said that there there is a path and it does not include new oil and gas. And by the way, existing, now we know existing oil and gas, there's research coming out those last couple of months showing that also has to be phased down. So the challenge definitely laid down by the climate challenge is it's, it's, it's one that we're not meeting in any way, but yeah, approving new projects uh, just flies in the face of all of that. And I will say just a second piece on that, an interesting thing that happened in the last few months is BP did a played a little bit of musical chairs with the other partner in the project, uh, which was Sonovus, and bought shares in this project, Nord, and Sonovus, for its turn, took BP shares in the oil in the tar sands. So I guess I just have a lot of skepticism in general about oil. These big oil companies saying they're they're shifting, and I think you covered on your show as well. Like a lot of their portfolios, you know, ninety five percent are still looking for new oil. So I think we have to be skeptical about their commitments in general, wherever they are in the world, oil sands, offshore oil, and are they just going to, you know, shift their portfolios to try to look like they're doing stuff. But uh, yeah, totally inconsistent, totally inconsistent from global energy expertise as well as what the climate imperative is saying. Yeah, for sure. And I, I should clarify that the article wasn't saying that they were saying it. It was more that more and more you're seeing smaller players end up taking bigger and bigger chunks of the tar sands deals because they're looking elsewhere. Yeah. It's too risky for the big. Yeah. You know, or they're, yeah. And, and you know, they're <laughs> definitely still going out and finding other places, right? Like they're, they're, they're going ham. So outside of the climate risk, which is obviously something I almost never say on this show, but we, <laughs> I think we just covered that there. <laughs> There are other major reasons why this project should not move forward. Can we talk about some of the environmental dangers and other things about that this project, you know, risks? Yeah, I mean, I think the one that will be top of mind to most people is the risk of a spill or a blowout out there. And this is an area actually where icebergs do drift by as well. So there's that extra danger of a, a rig being hit or a vessel being hit, you know, <laughs> by an iceberg. So it's, and then you have the additional dangers of the North Atlantic where, you know, you can have seas that are a few stories high in some situations and lots of fog and uncertain environments. So, and it's just really, really far from shore to get help. God forbid there's an accident and people are hurt. And of course the spill <clears throat> aspect. And we know from the assessment that, the project underwent that there really is no plan to deal with a spill, just a lot of reassurances that a spill won't happen. And of course, we question that risk assessment. <clears throat> and it turns out the Department of Fisheries and Oceans also questions that risk assessment. So there was a DFO researcher speaking in public a week ago or a week or two ago saying actually where when Equinor says that the risk it is low. It's actually not what we would call scientifically low. It's a 16% risk of a spill. So this is not low risk. And by the way, there really is no plan to deal with it. So, and by that, I mean, there's no equipment on site that could even potentially 
stop a blowout at the wellhead, like something called a capping stack. It would take 18 to 36 days to get one on site. During that time, oil would be gushing <clears throat> from the wellhead potentially. And yeah, uh, basically creating a, a huge oil slick and contaminating marine life. This is an area, like I say, not many people have been to unless you're in the fishing industry or the oil industry, or we're fortunate here and I'm based in, in Halifax, Chibukduk. there's a researcher at Dalhousie University who goes out there and studies the northern bottlenose whale <clears throat> and other marine life. So it's, and his stories of this area talk about how rich it is in marine life and whales, and we know it's an important area for fisheries as well. So that type of contamination from a major oil spill going on for even in the company's own estimates 36 days and uh, like i say i think they've downplayed risks in the assessment so you know that's like a minimum that's a catastrophe i think it would be hard for people to it's hard for me to wrap my head around and it's one that does keep me up at night and then we have the other issues which are also huge so with drilling there'll be noise it will go on and on and on <laughs> and like i say there is a uh, a whale species out there uh, the northern bottlenose which is actually endangered but other marine mammals mammals and, and marine life will <clears throat> experience that kind of chronic noise <clears throat> as i mentioned they're also looking for more oil so there's seismic blasting going on this summer in newfoundland <clears throat> and off newfoundland and labrador so that blasting means immense noise are uh, permeate the water column for weeks or months at a time. So they're experiencing those kind of risks. Yeah. And then there's just chronic kind of, you know, spills and things that happen. And the other issue that was highlighted as not being adequately covered is the risk of vessel traffic potentially striking marine mammals on the way to the rig because these rigs have to be supplied with people and goods and food, <laughs> all those kinds of things. So, and so there's traffic back and forth. So that also has been minimized and Folks may be aware with a lot of the media attention about the Atlantic right whale, but, you know, vessel strikes are a huge threat to that whale. Now that whale is, you know, not maybe as free, you know, frequenting that area as much as it is other areas in the Atlantic, but there are other, like I say, vulnerable species there that could be struck. And, you know, God forbid, there is a, a North Atlantic right whale struck. And again, that risk was, according to government scientists, minimized. So... A lot of risks to marine life. That's my background is marine biology. That's what brought me to this issue many decades ago. And those will be ongoing and they'll be going on as long as the project runs. And I guess I would say like the second piece of it, which is the fact that this project is procedural. The fact that this project got approved in spite of the warnings to about climate impacts, about risks to marine life and the lack of real accountability on how even those risks to climate were even estimated or not even taken into account. And the process should be of concern to folks that are looking at other damaging projects across the country. So it's a failure of the Canadian government to even assess risks. And now we've, we've unfortunately seen an approval of a project. Yeah, it's incredible. And I do think part of the issue is probably just the fact that it is so out of sight. We seem so yeah. willing, I think, to destroy land or water that is that you don't walk past. It ends up being the central piece of a lot of environmental justice conversations, which is like places that we just don't see or that the people in power aren't near become yeah. sacrifice zones. 
And, you know, it looks tar sands is an example. example. You know, so many places are other examples of areas where people are just like, well, I'm not there and therefore <laughs> we can do whatever we like. That's definitely fine. Exactly. And that's just and not the way we got to do this. <laughs> <laughs> and no one's going to be able to hide from climate impact. So it's, you know, again, exactly. It's, yeah. 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 The whole thing. So because of everything we've just mentioned, this project has received some negative attention around the world. And so I'm curious if you can talk a second for a second about how this project sort of connects to the wider international picture and how other countries are responding to it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's completely immoral that Canada is approving new offshore or any oil projects in this in this time of climate crisis and climate emergency. And I think the rest of the world is copping onto that. So for places, for instance, that aren't as well off as most of Canada is, and I know that there's poverty and there's, there's issues across the country that aren't, you know, but generally Canada is a pretty wealthy country. And the fact that we are doing this means that other countries that are less well off can point to Canada and say they're doing it. Let's let's go ahead. So there's that aspect of it. But then also I, I guess it's been really cool to see since this started how people around the world who are concerned about Equinor's record in particular, so folks from Norway and people around the world have said like this has to stop. And countries do have to stop approving new oil and gas projects and really have been part of it like a global movement now, I think, to really do all, you know, all eyes on, on Beta Nord and all eyes on Canada. And we will be watching and, you know, supportive of our court case, because I should mention we are legally challenging the approval, but also supportive of us doing everything we can to make the companies that want to drill there understand that this is not going to go ahead and we are going to oppose it in every which way we can. So, yeah. Yeah, thanks. And so I'm curious, again, due to everything we've talked about and due to this sort of international concern and everything's happening, how is our federal government trying to justify this approval? I feel like there's got to be some twist of phrase or something. They got to be doing something, you know, given the fact that, as you mentioned, the IEA has said we don't need any more fossil fuels. And in fact, that any new fossil fuels would be put us at risk and making 1.5. And this is just obviously not that, right? It, it's the most transparently not that. And so I'm curious, yeah. how are they justifying this? Honestly, <laughs> they can't. And I think to put it baldly, I think what's happened here is because they have not invested in a just transition and support for Newfoundland and Labrador and policies and money that would support communities impacted by what needs to happen. The fig leaf they're using is that this is somehow a clean project and somehow, some way, it's emissions. And generally, when the Canadian government speaks about emissions, they're only talking, when I say only, it's still significant, talking about emissions, not from the oil produced, but the oil associated with the drilling. So somehow, mysteriously, magically, that will be offset and dealt with and like relative to other more in energy intensive and GHG intensive projects like in the tar sands, this is somehow better. And, you know, two things about that is that, again, through the very the flawed 
environmental assessment process, good estimates were not provided of the operational, what they call the operational greenhouse gas emissions and how Equinor is estimating how they are magically going to make this um, less emitting than other projects. And so I, I question those estimates since that, you know, it's, again, it's there, there. Later, we'll tell you how we're going to do that. So that's been punted. <clears throat> and then I guess the second thing is, you know, as we've said many times, there is no such thing as green oil right now. There's only oil that we need to reduce the demand for. So that's their fig leaf. And I think politically, as I said, the calculation is because they haven't made that leadership an investment in just transition in Newfoundland and Labrador. The political calculation is that they need the votes in Newfoundland and Labrador. And unfortunately, they have not shored up communities for the transition to come. So they've put themselves, and unfortunately, the people that will be worst hit between a rock and a hard place, and they kind of have to do this for the prosperity of Newfoundland and Labrador, which is false. But that's, I think, most baldly, it's not about climate at all. It's about poor, right. poor leadership and poor planning. Right. That depressingly makes sense. So let's pivot to the fight against it. We've pretty, I think, successfully laid out all of the ways in which this should not happen. So let's move into how we can maybe convince everyone that it will not happen and turn this generally depressing news story into a win. So the Sierra Club is part of an alliance of organizations that's working against this project. Who else is a part of it and, and what are you calling for? Well, we're calling for the project to not go ahead and yes, for a just transition. And by that, that's a word that gets tossed around a lot. But I think in Newfoundland and Labrador, that could be upskilling for workers. That could be investments in energy efficiency. That could be investments in wind and offshore wind in community-based solar. So that's what we're calling for. And the coalition is very large and, and growing, but I guess some of the folks we've been working with through the Climate Action Network are, you know, Equiter, uh, WWF, Norway in particular has been extremely helpful and, you know, hosted me in Norway for the AGM for Equinor, which was pretty in incredible opportunity to speak directly to investors in the project. Greenpeace, <laughs> I don't know, it's like, it's basically, I would say almost a stand earth. Yeah, and in Newfoundland and Labrador, the Social Justice Network and the Council of Canadians chapter there in Newfoundland and Labrador, and also groups that are working on something decarbonize NL. So like local groups have been speaking out as well. So it'd be hard to list them all, but it's pretty broad swaths of, of groups that care about communities and care about climate change. And uh, I suppose our target now continues to be the federal government in some senses, because we do think that the opposition that came because of Bade the Lord, I think, surprised them. I think they thought they might be able to smother this with some other communications and look over here. Here's our climate change plan, which again, <laughs> was flawed, but here's our budget, also giving more money to the fossil fuel industry. So I don't think their storyline really worked, and the opposition has been immense and continues. So I think we're going to continue targeting federal parties and the federal government and, and asking all of them to wake up to what they have 
done. And I think the information coming from Department of Fisheries and Oceans scientists about information not included in the assessments and of course, new growing information about the climate emergency in the context and the lack of real information on how they are going to deal with greenhouse gas emissions from the project. I think all of those things could provide um, leverage points and points where the federal government and, and other, it could intervene in this project. But the other target, of course, is the companies themselves, which is, you know, why I was asked to travel uh, at, to Norway and speak to the AGM and to illustrate to them that this is not a welcome project and that it's a risky one in the context of the climate imperative. So reducing demand, you know, reduction in demand for oil and gas, but also risky because of local opposition and that we're not going to stand down on this. So, yeah, so that's kind of the, the tactics right now. and. I guess the other piece is just keeping folks aware of the issue and supporting the growing movement in Newfoundland and Labrador for just transition, because I think people do need to see alternatives and they have seen broken promises in the past from the oil industry. So they're very well aware this is a boom and bust industry and the benefits are risky and getting riskier every day. So I think there's great interest in paving the way toward a new path. So I think supporting that movement is a critical piece of this as well. Yeah, for sure. And so what kind of actions are, are y'all taking? You know, like protests and letters campaigns. I've seen a series of different letters to editor that y'all have obviously put forward and, and got printed. And yeah. So how how is this fight taking shape? <laughs> well, we actually, I will, I'll be honest, after the, like, it's been a crazy <laughs> campaigning spring and early summer so I think we are a little bit stepping back now and seeing like what's the next strategies and 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 areas where we can can make a difference but I think the on the ground organizing for the just transition is one key area and then there is a big oil and gas conference that it goes ahead in, in Norway every, every so often. And so that would be an opportunity, to, again, to raise opposition to this project and to keep that going. But I guess I will say we've been sort of <laughs> developing our strategy now that unfortunately, you know, we hoped, I did hope against hope we would see a good result on Bay the Nord and back in April. I really did feel that definitely the sentiment was with us to oppose the project and that finally we would see a, a real change in how we're going to approach oil and gas in this country, but that didn't happen. So I think we're kind of a little bit assessing opportunities and figuring out how to move forward with the exception of the ongoing meetings and gatherings on just transition in Newfoundland and Labrador. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. And so for the folks who sort of hear that and are like, ah, oh, that's too bad. I'd like to stay involved so that when the sort of next stage of this fight comes in, how can they plug themselves in or how can they begin to support? Okay. Well, definitely uh, our website is uh, www.crclub.ca and you can sign up for our newsletters there and just so that you can get updates and see what's happening and when there's events happening. And there are ongoing climate rallies happening in Quebec, for instance, that that often focus on Bay the Nord, but in other places across the country. So that would be a way. And then to follow us on social media as well, on Facebook and on Instagram and TikTok, because then we can put up alerts when a climate rally is happening and when there's an event where you could participate in person or social media or write a letter or meet with your MP and so forth. So yeah, definitely check us out online and keep tracking because there are things 
coming and happening. It's just, we have to, <laughs> we have to, I think, basically step back a bit and, and figure out what's, what are the next steps at this point. Right. That makes sense. So before we wrap this up, I do want to pivot to a more personal question because it's something that I ask everyone who is a part of this sort of fight and I'm slowly gaining answers, which is, do you experience climate anxiety? And if so, how do you manage it? Oh boy. <laughs> Thank you for asking. I mean, that's, <laughs> I have, yeah, I have been involved in these fights for decades and I have to say, and this may point to me being a bit delusional <laughs> myself. It's only in the last few years that I have really felt, I always knew that we were going to, we're going to win this. We have to. So I guess that helps me just that confidence that we are going to, because I do see every day, like people taking steps and stopping projects and doing good projects, getting them to happen. So I know collectively the shift is happening and it's going to happen even faster. And I, I do have faith, a lot of faith in the potential of the movement to move and move quickly. So I think that helps, but I will say in the last couple of years, I do feel a very deep, deep fear as well, which I know a lot of people experienced for a longer time. And I think it's just like everyone in the broader public, you're actually seeing it and yeah, I also have a daughter who's seven and I, it does, it makes me cry to think she might, the thing she is going to experience and be confronted with, even as a very privileged Canadian person, white Canadian person. <laughs> so, you know, the things, the challenges she will experience are things that, you know, I have to create resilience in her and I have faith in her, but shouldn't be things that the oil companies have made her confront. And yeah, the things that she won't experience. So I'm a bird watcher and she will not, it's a fact, she will not see the richness that I was privileged to experience. So that makes me very sad. So I do feel it very deeply, but I've really only allowed myself to feel it, I guess, the last couple of years because it is so in front of my face and, you know, that it's, it's hard to, to say we've turned the ship in time, let's just say. But yeah, I guess what helps me is anger, like, because I am very, very angry at the injustice. And I know that injustice is much more deeply felt by other parts of society than, you know, again, like I am in a privileged position to be leadership of a, an environmental organization, part of this fight. Um, but yeah, so, and other parts of our society will feel it much more extremely and yeah, we'll suffer and parts of the world will suffer much more, but it makes me very angry, but it also, that anger motivates me. <laughs> and I think also what, what helps is that confidence in those around me that I, I do see doing creative and cool and fun things and knowing. I remember the first big climate march, you know, I think it was 2019 when there were these, this youth movement really came to a, a moment of, of real huge impact and yeah, I was like, it's happening. And I have confidence in that movement. I really do. And that, that we can shift. So I think that really helps. So it's anger and, and faith, <laughs> I guess, helps. And, you know, I come from a family that cries a lot at movies, as you can probably tell. 
<laughs> so I think also being able to to like experience that grief and have those tears and express them helps a lot. So I don't bottle it in all the time. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And I think yeah, that's shedding a few fair. tears at times that does help. And knowing yeah. others are are feeling the same. So yeah. yeah, yeah, totally. I do feel like last couple of years people have really started shifting on this and starting to feel it more deeply and starting you, you start seeing climate grief circles pop up you know we had a yeah. interview a couple months ago about someone who started one in edmonton and these kinds of responses are sitting deeper in people's bones so you're, you're certainly not alone in this yeah and it's you know there's been studies done on that part of human nature is you do need to have that feeling for action and i think that feeling to me is is very out there and not just in me it's in a lot of people around me so i think that's that's what's going to turn this and yeah like i say i'm very confident we're going to shift it's just we have to push it and we all have to i think be as equally confident i think that the shift is and must happen yeah for sure well thank you so much Gretchen Fitzgerald, the National Program Director of the Sierra Club, and for all of your work and for keeping us up to date on Bedunor. And may we turn this depressing story into a good one yet? Yes. Either in court or in the court of public opinion, we are going <laughs> to, we're going to win. And oh gosh, our oceans and our climate will be so much better for it. So thank you for paying attention to the story. And yeah, please check us out if you want to get more involved. Uh, www.sierraclub.ca. Really appreciate it. Mm -hmm.